hppodcraft.com. Hi, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lanky. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. This is our 62nd show, Chris. Yeah, number 62. That's uh, 61 more than Hile Honey, I'm Home. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> it was that British show where it was uh, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun yes. living together. It was yeah, like a 1950s were... sitcom and then like a Jewish couple moved in next to us. Yeah. One episode. Anyway, we just wanted to let everybody know we're still taking donations for the release of From Beyond by Bruce Green and The Picture in the House read by Andrew Lehman. We're about halfway there. Almost a thousand. Of course, any size contribution is fine. Anything will, will help free these wonderful things out into the world. Yeah. And you know what? If you don't think it's worth it, Okay, you'll, right. you'll still get them for free. That's okay. Yeah, eventually um, they'll be out there. Also, Richard M. Mathis over at darkmythos.com. Oh, uh, yeah. Has, yeah, he contacted us about a contest they're running uh, until the 17th of this month. That's a site that focuses on fantasy flight games products. Yeah, yeah, like um, the Call of Cthulhu card game and also Arkham Horror. They want people to photograph or Photoshop themselves into Lovecraftian situations and send them in to the site again by the 17th. And the ones they like the most, uh, they're going to give away two copies of Arkham Horror, the game, which is it's a pretty expensive game, actually. Yeah, it is. Uh, as well as some products from the webcomics Lovecraft is Missing and The Watcher of Yuthagu. Oh, okay. Yuthagu. <laughs> Yathagu. We'll, we'll, we'll put links up to those comics. You know, we've not mentioned them on the show before, but I think it's some pretty fun stuff. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of sending in a photo of myself just sleeping. That's a Lovecraftian situation. Isn't sure, it? yeah, yeah. I'm dreaming, man. <laughs> Cthulhu, he sleeps too. That's right. Ooh, it's chilling. This week, uh, we are uh, jumping into a story called The Last Test. Now, this one is not actually written by H.P. Lovecraft, but it's sort of co-written. Adolf DeCastro wrote a story, and Lovecraft kind of rewrote it. That's right. Few persons know the inside of the Clarendon story, or even that there is an inside not reached by the newspapers. It was a San Francisco sensation in the days before the fire, both because of the panic and menace that kept it company, and because of its close linkage with the governor of the state. Governor Dalton, it will be recalled, was Clarendon's best friend and later married his sister. Neither Dalton nor Mrs Dalton would ever discuss the painful affair, but somehow the facts have leaked out to a limited circle. But for that and for the years which have given a sort of vagueness and impersonality to the actors one would still pause before probing into secrets so strictly guarded at the time. So it seems like they're not talking about what happened to this... um, Clarendon. Clarendon. It was a sensation in the entire city, but what actually happened behind the scenes is is something that few people know about. This week's reader is none other than Marty Johnson, who is a presenter on BBC here, on BBC One, I believe, and in the UK. Yeah, super cool. And he's a great reader, as you heard, and just all-around great guy. I like to call this story the last test of my patience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Man, it took forever. It's long, and I just... Uh... I have to say, for some reason, when I was reading the story, I was I kept thinking of, like, a 1950s B-movie. Oh, absolutely. Even with the speeches in the end of the story. Yeah. I mean, that's funny. I did, too. It totally seemed that way. Like, Even though uh, it's and, written in the 20s, it still uh-huh. felt like a 1950s B-movie to me. Yeah. A Ed Wood kind of, like, exactly. he tampered in God's domain. Well, before before we, we, we get too critical of it, uh, which we yeah, will momentarily, sure, sure. let's just get through, crank it through the story. The main players of this tale of sadness and woe is Dr. Alfred Clarendon, who is the brother mm-hmm. of Georgina. Right. Now, there's also this third guy, James Dalton. Now, James mm-hmm. has the, the hots for young Georgina, and he's also a young guy. And mm-hmm. he goes to old man Clarendon and says, hey, I want to marry your, your daughter. But old man Clarendon says, no way, you're you're poor. Your family, oh, yeah. your family stinks. Get out of here. And, and old man Clarendon's a, a, a total prick. I mean, th- so the thing is, this all happens in 
San Francisco, the story. Yes. And at the beginning, you know that these three main players have a relationship. And it actually, they explain it because where they end up is James Dalton becomes the governor of California. Right. And Dr. Alfred Clarendon, as we learn in the first few paragraphs, has been appointed as the medical director of San Quentin Penitentiary sometime in the 1890s. But 10 years before that, these people all knew each other in New York City. Yeah. When the two the two Clarendons were growing up with their father, Old Man Clarendon that you mentioned, and then James, they were all friends. But the parent, Old Man Clarendon, and James Dalton's father were both Wall Street guys. Old Man Clarendon was really ruthless. And one day, he stripped Dalton's father of everything he owned during yeah. some fight on the stock exchange. He yeah. basically bankrupted him, yep. which had some pretty terrible consequences. He killed himself. Because he, he was so broke, he needed his family to keep living. And the only thing he had left was his life insurance. So he blew his own brains out yep. so that his family could have something to live on. But and here's the thing. It's James didn't begrudge old man Clarendon for being such a jerk because he was like, well, it was the game that my dad was playing and my dad just didn't play it very well. Which I, I know. Was, I couldn't believe that he had that in there. <laughs> well, because I, I think what it was about was he still wanted to marry Georgina. And, yeah. you know, he's got to kind of reconcile that somehow in his mind that he's going to go ask this guy. Who, you know, drove his father. And the way he reconciled it was by saying, hey, you know what? Hate the player, don't hate the game. <laughs> exactly. That's the backstory. And the father says no. So he goes, screw you guys. I'm out of here. Well, he doesn't say that, but he, mm -hmm. he just leaves and goes to make his, his life in California. And he, I got to say, I was so excited when I began reading this. Because there's no Lovecraft stories in California. No, no. I thought that was a really neat and uh, different setting. Well, this is actually the Old West California because it's the 1880s, 1890s. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Sort of like uh, the, um, you know, the milkshake guy. What? The milkshake guy. You know, the guy with the mustache? And he loves his milkshake? <laughs> oh, there will be blood? There will be blood. That's it. It's that era of California. Yeah, it's a different world. Dalton goes to California, makes his way. He eventually becomes governor of California. Governor of California. And the Clarendons don't even know that that happens. Yeah. Because after old man Clarendon tells him, screw you, you can't have my daughter's hand in marriage. And he says, all right, I'm out of here. They lose contact. Days later, he dies. Old man Clarendon dies, yeah. Yeah. And Dalton doesn't even hear about it because he, he says goodbye to Georgina and goodbye to Alfred. But he takes off and they don't have contact at all over this stretch of time. Ten years. I did find that a little hard to believe. I know the world wasn't as connected, obviously, in the 19th century, but how these people that used to be friends didn't know that he had become governor of California. Well, maybe they just assumed that, you know, it was a different guy, you know, the, the same name. Yeah, I guess so. Well, also, the thing that we learn about Alfred is that he is obsessed with his job and science, and he devotes his life entirely to medicine. In fact, he's kind of a prick about it. You know, he says, hey, if you're going to be in this business, you need to devote yourself entirely to medicine, and having a life outside of helping people is selfish. And people who do that, who get married and have kids, they're jerks because they should be serving <laughs> science. He rattles off this kind of stuff all the time. Now, his sister, she spends all her time tending to him and taking care of him. Because he's big deal. You know, at 25, he's well-renowned. And by 30, he's world famous for his uh, his work in treating fever. Yeah, well, he discovers an actual disease, the black fever. Right. When he discovers this, he, I mean, he travels the world studying diseases mm -hmm. and, and bacteria, infections and all these types of things. And in his travels, he picks up, <laughs> he picks up an entourage. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he gets some tall Tibetan men who are super, yeah. super skinny and wear loose black silk robes. He goes to Asia and when he comes back, he's just got these Tibetan guys with him. And then there's another guy he brings back from a trip. But queerest of all was the general factotum or clinic man, whom Clarendon addressed as Surama and whom he had brought back with him after a long stay in Northern Africa, during which he had studied certain odd, intermittent fevers among the mysterious Saharan Tuaregs, 
whose descent from the primal race of lost Atlantis is an old archaeological rumour. Sarama, a man of great intelligence and seemingly inexhaustible erudition, was as morbidly lean as the Tibetan servants, with swarthy, parchment-like skin, drawn so tightly over his bald pate and hairless face that every line of the skull stood out in ghastly prominence. This death's head effect being heightened by lustrelessly burning black eyes, set with a depth which left to common visibility only a pair of dark, vacant sockets. Unlike the ideal subordinate, he seemed, despite his impassive features, to spend no effort in concealing such emotions as he possessed. Instead, he carried about an insidious atmosphere of irony or amusement, accompanied at certain moments by a deep, guttural chuckle, like that of a giant turtle, which has just torn to pieces some furry animal and is ambling away towards the sea. His race appeared to be Caucasian, but could not be classified more closely than that. Some of Clarendon's friends thought he looked like a high-caste Hindu, notwithstanding his accentless speech, while many agreed with Georgina, who disliked him, when she gave her opinion that a pharaoh's mummy, if miraculously brought to life, would form a very apt twin for this sardonic skeleton. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty neat sketch of a character, and yeah. one of the very cool things about the story. One. One. <laughs> I love the, the description in there that his chuckle is like a giant turtle tearing some furry animal to pieces. Yeah. This is totally Lovecraft because I know specifically that this character wasn't in the original story. Oh, really? Yeah. I think that uh, from what accounts I heard of this revision, all the good stuff is Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, at least all the supernatural stuff is definitely Lovecraft. The original story was just a guy. He got obsessed with diseases and studying them and kind of treated his sister poorly and all that stuff. It, was, it seemed like a pretty boring story. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> so basically, uh, Clarendon, he's practicing in New York, and they live a pretty isolated life out there, but he decides he wants some, a new place to settle, so they, he moves to San Francisco with his sister. Well, he's looking for a place to settle, but he wants to get a, a job at some kind of institution or hospital or something that he could keep right. doing his studies. But he doesn't really know how to go about that. No. I mean, it, it's, everything kind of happens fortuitously, because they move out to San Francisco just so he can continue his research as they settle in a mansion by Goat Hill. I don't know where that is, but I've eaten at Goat Hill Pizza in San Francisco. Oh. That's pretty good. And uh, they <laughs> Uh, they accidentally run into Dalton just on the street. They have that great moment where Georgina's like, oh my God, it's my lost love. And he's like, oh my God, I'm the governor of California. I'm just strolling around. And uh, <laughs> and they start catching up and they hang out all the time. And Dalton, he says, I'm going to use my influence as governor to get Alfred, whom he calls Little Alf, <laughs> uh, a job at San Quentin Penitentiary. Willie! <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's the background of everything. The doctor's got a job at San Quentin Penitentiary so he can try to eradicate fever in all its forms, which is his you know, primary focus. Right. And he's got a huge cohort of uh, prisoners that he can test on. We go into the next chapter in which somebody gets black fever in the prison. At San Quentin. He says, it's not contagious. Don't worry about it. I know black fever. I'm an expert on black fever. Then two, two days later, three more guys get it. And everybody starts freaking out. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's, don't worry about it. Well, he yeah. And he goes over and he like rubs the patient's ears and he talks to him. The patient appears to get better, but he but dies. Die. <laughs> and um, yeah. the, the sort of menace of it gets out. The rumor gets started that basically the disease, the black fever has gotten out of the prison. So mm. people start flipping out and San Francisco goes nuts and people are just leaving the town and businesses are closing. And, and you know, this happens for a few weeks until they realize there are no cases outside of the prison. You know, the, the truth right. finally gets out and people start to kind of come back. 
but then they're ticked at Clarendon. They're all ticked at him because he's like a bad doctor and he's not really treating people. And <laughs> It's a it, funny press cycle. The journalists scare everybody and then people try to profit on it. Like it says the saloons are offering medicated drinks and stuff. Yeah. And then everybody leaves and it's destroying the infrastructure of San Francisco that nobody's there. The reporters say, no, no, everything's fine. Come back. And then the doctors who had run away start writing editorials against Clarendon like, well, we can take care of it too. We're not afraid of anything. And he's permitting more deaths than are necessary there in the prison. In the name of science, he's letting people get really sick. And it also says that people, you know, they hate unusual, unexplainable things. And that about Clarendon is what's really driving people crazy right. too. You know, he's got those eight Orientals who are there and, and his weird <laughs> chuckling attendants and nobody, he won't talk to the press. No, it's all beneath him. It's all beneath his work. He just doesn't want anything to do with it. He doesn't care what people say about him. But Georgina gets bothered by it. And so, yeah. you know, Dalton comes by and kind of consoles her. And, and that's when you meet Dick the, the St. Bernard, you know, her dog. Right. And he's, you know, right. super nice and everything like that. But there's this incident where one of the reporters climbs over. There's it kind of have a, this estate where there's a wall around it and a moat. And this yeah. reporter swims the moat, climbs the wall and gets over to try and see what's going on. And you, you've discovered that there are there's this whole <laughs> menagerie. Is it a moat that big that you have to swim it? I, I, I don't know. I thought it was just a ditch or something. No, I love that. <laughs> In my head, it was, he swam it. You know, it was one of those things. And he had to fight off a crocodile or two. Well, he's a total, you know, paparazzi. I'm getting in there no matter what. Exactly. You know, and he gets and, in there and he mm-hmm. sees that there's all these animals being kept there. And it's, you know, he's mm-hmm. what's going on? What's happening? All this weird stuff. Yeah, and there's a clinic. He gets caught and Sarama grabs him basically and just throws him out of the, the place and into the mud and totally yeah. disgraces him. And that guy's like, I'm going to get vengeance. And so he starts spreading this whole crazy rumor around. Oh, yeah. Well, he fakes an interview. He says, I, I sat down with. Uh, Dr. Clarendon and he said a bunch of crazy shit that's going to make you hate him. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just really fabricates it. It's great. Totally and, lied. And uh, diabolically skillful, it says his article. Um, yeah. It said it succeeded in horrifying nine readers out of ten <laughs> against Dr. Clarendon. <laughs> Where's that market research come from? <laughs> San Francisco goes crazy again, this time as much with rage as fear. And it said there ensued a reign of vice and recklessness born out of desperation. What? I mean, yeah. are the papers wielding this much influence over I know. People? people are out of control. They're just going nuts, drinking themselves blind. Now they're not going to run away. They're just having orgies in the street because they're all going to get black <laughs> fever. Dalton, as you said, he's coming over. He's comforting Georgina. Clarendon doesn't even care. He doesn't answer any of these articles. Georgina's like, I know that we're supposed to be above this, but it, these attacks hurt just the same. And then it says, Dalton kissed her hand in a manner not then obsolete among well-born persons. <laughs> Is there, I mean, what happens? How is it obsolete now? What's so special about it? Is he like kiss the two middle knuckles, then he does like a quick lick on the wrist or something? I mean, is this some kind of secret? What does that mean? A quick Obsol- lick on like the it's wrist. A- <laughs> what? I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's totally terrible. Dalton wants to, he basically says, you know, Georgina, I want to marry you. I love you. You're great. Let's get married. And she goes, okay, you'll have to ask my brother. And as they're having this conversation outside, they hear what sounds like a child screaming, mama, mama. They hear this, like what they think is a subdued cry of a, a child. And uh, then Georgina says, you know what? He's got parrots in there. So it's probably just, we're such silly bitches. It's just a parrot. You know what I mean? <laughs> Totally just forgive themselves. Yeah, just forgive it. Well, hey, Chad, I don't know if you remember. We had parrots in Santa Monica that lived behind us. You remember that? That sounded just like kids. That's true. It sounded like there were kids that yelled the exact same way every time. And it was weeks or months. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, there was weeks or months before I was out in the back and I parked the car and I was like, why is that kid in the... Wait a minute. That's not a kid. That's that's a freaking parrot that's mimicking kid sounds. Yeah, it was really creepy. 
Maybe they're not too far off base. They're not too far That's off base. Movie. I'm gonna, I'm defending yeah. them. I'm the silly bitch. <laughs> well, now, <laughs> so, so that, but when they hear that, they they go, oh, it's nothing. And later, Dalton says, all right, now is my chance. I'm gonna for the second time ask to marry Georgina. Yeah. And when he asks Clarendon, Clarendon's like, no way. No. He's a real jerk about it. Yeah. He's like, look, I need my sister here. All these people's, all this, my work and research. If my sister's not here to make this house work, all these people will die. And is that your your happiness or her happiness worth that? No, I don't think so. And he's like, but yeah. come on, she yeah. she just kind of cleans the house. She's not. You don't really need her. And you know, we're family. We should. Yeah. And he goes, we're not family. Get out of here. You're, you're never. You're an welcome. outsider. You're an outsider. And then he looks in the mirror and sees he's a skeleton. <laughs> when he goes to uh, Georgina, he says, all right, well, he, we don't have his blessings, so you just want to run away together. She goes, you know what? Just wait a while. Yeah. If you love me, just wait. Just wait, because this is a really hard time on my brother. You know, he pretends that all this stuff doesn't mean anything to him, but it's really the stress is, is destroying him, and he needs me right now. And if you love me, you'll wait. And of course, Dalton being a good guy, he goes, okay, I'll wait. And I'll, you know, yeah. I'll take So it. he backs away from everything. Meanwhile, the, the press keeps attacking people. You know, they don't like Clarendon. Clarendon's assistant at San Quentin, Dr. Jones, he wants to get rid of Clarendon, and he starts to engineer this whole legislative way to do it, where basically he starts lobbying the legislation of San Francisco or of California in Sacramento to um, take away the authority of the governor to make these appointments and right. give it up to a board. The prison because board, he has specifically. A, he's got a relative on the prison board. Yep. And uh, it works. Now, Dr. Clarendon, because he's so focused on his work, is completely oblivious to this fact. And one day... The chairman of the board, who is related to Dr. Jones, shows up at San Quentin and basically says, hey, uh, I'm in charge here. Well, you know, he's showing him around and then Clarendon comes in and says, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? You're not allowed in here. And he goes, well, you know, actually, I am allowed in here. He goes, no, you're not. Get out. I know what I'm doing. He goes, why are, why are you not treating these people? Why are you not giving them water? Why are you not doing this? And he, he goes, who are you? are in no position to tell me anything. I am the man in charge of this institution. He goes, oh, no, you're not. I yeah. am because I'm the head of the board. And then he says, oh, well, the board, I don't answer to the board. I answer only to the governor. And he goes, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> and then it's got a great conclusion to that scene <laughs> where it says, Transformed by the insult to a sudden dynamo of hate, the slender scientist launched out with both fists in a burst of preternatural strength of which no one would have thought him capable. And if his strength was preternatural, his accuracy of aim was no less so. For not even a champion of the ring could have wrought a neater result. Both men, the chairman and Dr. Jones, were squarely hit, the one full in the face and the other on the point of the chin. Going down like felled trees, they lay motionless and unconscious on the floor. While Clarendon, now clear and completely master of himself, took his hat and cane and went out to join Sarama in the lodge. Only when seated in the moving boat did he at last give audible vent to the frightful rage that consumed him. Then, with face convulsed, he called down imprecations from the stars and gulfs beyond the stars, so that even Sarama shuddered, made an elder sign that no book of history records, and forgot to chuckle. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> that, that was awesome. That was because it was so out of left field that I'm like, yeah. what? He's like a he, super. He did a double punch. He punched two guys at the same time. <laughs> Not like a one-two punch. He just reached out with both arms and punched two guys and knocked them out. <laughs> he knocked them out with both oh. fists. This doctor. <laughs> yeah. 
It was ridiculous. So now we're in part four. What's going on in part four? Georgina's brother, a Clarendon, he is devastated because now he doesn't have his his institution anymore to work from. So he's just kind of bumming around and being sad and feeling crappy about himself. And she's trying to cheer him up, doesn't do anything. He doesn't dress. He doesn't, you know, he's just a wreck. It's making Sarama a little antsy because his favorite thing is experiments and grabbing those animals and, and basically torturing them, you know? I mean, he loves bringing them, dragging them into the clinic for them to be tested on. Yeah. So he's getting really antsy around the house. Georgina obviously doesn't like that her brother's so depressed, but she does say, hey, look, these animals aren't dying. She thinks, well, I wish that this would kind of go on a little longer because maybe he'll get some rest and stop being so crazy. And then some of these animals will survive. Unfortunately, what happens is Sarama gets some kind of package from Algiers got some kind of terrible odor it smells terrible and they have a a a thunderstorm that night which is really rare in california Uh and the next day clarendon is suddenly like hey yeah i'm back into doing our experiments and sarama is real happy and he starts grabbing animals from the cages and bringing them back to the clinic they actually go through all of the animals pretty quickly yeah and and uh clarendon is is starting to freak out it's like we need more animals we got to get more animals and Sarama... Is yeah, it's just, another it's another case where uh, Georgina overhears a conversation that those two are having. Yes. Sarama says, hey, man, chill out. We've got plenty of time. Don't worry about it. He says things like, you're like a child in, in your impatience. I've been around. I know things. Right. Relax, and eventually we'll get these things taken care of. And then he yeah. says, I can't relax. We have to do this now. It's 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 really important. And Sarama is, is advocating that they start testing on the Tibetan servants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's He's basically saying, look, you know, we do still have some specimens just because all of the uh, all the animals are gone. These Tibetan guys got to eat at some point and I can grab them. I'd, I say we start with uh, Sanpo because he's not that useful. <laughs> Pretty creepy. And of course, that, that freaks uh, Georgina out. Yeah. And she, you know, she, she basically faints. faints. She yeah. faints. <laughs> the next day she wakes up, she thinks I was just being crazy. They were just having a crazy scientist conversation. Everything's okay. But there's a gunshot. There's a gunshot. She looks out and Sarama's basically holding a gun on Sampo, who's trying to get away. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's got, he pulls out a knife, but uh, Sarama shoots the knife out of his hand. And basically grabs him by the scruff of the neck and then just drags him into the clinic. And then she faints again. <laughs> and she faints again. <laughs> yeah. So she finally goes and she talks to her brother. And it's like, why are you freaking out? What's going on? And he says, days of work have been wasted. How am I going to get anywhere if I can't get some decent subjects? He's basically like afraid that somebody else is going to discover the cure for all of these fevers and he's going to get scooped. And he's saying, you know, everything is a sacrifice to the ultimate good. All these animals have to die. I know you don't like it, but they have to. Even I am a, a sacrifice. My happiness, my body, it yeah. means nothing. And, and it's not uh, about, it's not just about a humanity. It's about science. It's about knowledge. You know, humanity is, is kind of, this is where his attitude sort of changes a little bit in the story. He stops talking about humanity. He starts, starts talking about just pure knowledge and that humans aren't even going to always be around and you know it's humans are a transitory thing but knowledge is superior she thinks that's a horrible thing to say and he's like yeah horrible you know what sarama knows some stuff there were things that were known to the priests of atlantis when our forebears were shambling around uh, asia as speechless semi-apes and he says i once heard an old man in china calling on yag satha yeah and, uh, you know, he makes another sign in the air. This is Lovecraft working in his... His mythos. His Yuxothra. And then basically he says, look, you, you should be helping me because you are, you know, my sister and and this is important and I know it's important to you. And she goes, yeah, well, okay, I'll help you. I understand this is important and I'll, you know, I've given up a lot and I'll give up more. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, and that, yeah, the, the, the dog gets sick suddenly. Uh-huh. And then a, her brother's very callous about treating the dog they take it into the clinic the dog gets black fever and sarama seems upset he wants to treat the dog which is strange for sarama but he doesn't like the dog is sick and clarendon's like whatever he just goes to the library he's not even interested it upsets georgina and she says somebody's got to step in 
so she writes a message to Dalton, who's in Sacramento at the time. Yeah. Says, come to San Francisco. You've got to help us out. And that's how we get into the fifth chapter. Dalton gets the summons. He says, oh, I knew something would be up. And he gets back to San Francisco. One thing that uh, Georgina is starting to realize, even though all this madness is going on, it seems a little nicer. Something seems a little nicer around the house. And she realizes it's that all the Tibetan servants are now gone. Yeah. And so she uh, she decides, I've got to talk to my brother. I really have to try. She goes out to the clinic and there's another scene, yet another scene where she overhears, overhears. a fight between Sarama and her brother. Sarama's basically saying, you, as you said before, you need to slow down. You need to take care. And Alfred says to him, you, damn you, you're a fine one to talk defeat and moderation to me. Who started all this anyway? Did I have any idea of your cursed devil gods and elder world? Did I ever, in my life, think of your damned spaces beyond the stars and your crawling chaos Nihalethotep? I was a normal scientific man, confound you, till I was fool enough to drag you out of the vaults with your devilish Atlantean secrets. You egged me on, and now you want to cut me off. You loaf around doing nothing and telling me to go slow when you might just as well as not be going out and getting material. You know damn well that I don't know how to go about such things. Whereas you must have been an old hand at it before the earth was made. It's like you, you damned walking corpse, to start something you won't or can't finish. So we, we kind of find out who uh, Sarama is, and it seems like he's sort of some Atlantean sorcerer that was in, like in a tomb and, and he was brought yeah. back to life somehow yeah and he he's had it at this point he says clarendon you're insane you're no fun anymore you're a <laughs> jerk for sacrificing your poor sister's pet dog when you could have just spared him and we could have gotten some other kind of subjects uh-huh. it's about time i tried somebody else i'm not gonna work with you anymore i'm afraid you're gonna have to go but then clarendon says hey you know what you don't know everything i i have my own tricks i've worshipped at the underground shrines of nug and yeb and ia yeah. shabnugura <laughs> all right this is the first time in this story that you hear shabnugurath Nug, uh, Yeb. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's kind of cool. I mean, I don't know. What is Shab Nugorath? I hate saying that name. <laughs> it's sort of the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. It's a, it's a great old one, elder god. It's a, it's a bad thing. You don't want any part of it. Sarama laughs about, well, what, you're going to use some ancient, it, you know, your words and your formulae, they don't mean anything to me. This is the material world. You've got your fever you can try and give me, but I've got a revolver that can shoot you before you can do that. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of having a, a standoff. And Georgina leaves after having heard this. She kind of sinks into the swooning, fainting stupor. She first sends a message, get Dalton over here. She tells the maid to go get Dalton. Yeah. Alfred comes out and he sees that she's sick and he feels bad about it. He gives her a little water and she starts coming too. He says, I think you're a bit feverish. And she says, what are you talking about? I'm in perfect health. Don't yeah. worry about me. Yeah. And then he kind of has an idea. And this idea is to get, you know, affect his sister with this. And she realizes that he, that's the idea that's in his head. And then she goes, hey, well, maybe you should get some sleep. You know, everything's going to be OK. And he goes, yeah, let's get some sleep. Why don't I get some morphine for us? And we'll both get some sleep. And then he goes and takes off. And she's like, oh, no. Yeah. He's gonna come <laughs> My and... brother's going to freak me out. The maid comes back and she's like, where's Dalton? She's like, oh, he wasn't there. So I left a message. And he's like, oh, I left a message. I need help. And so uh, right as her brother comes back with a, with a gold syringe fully loaded, Dalton shows up. Yeah, thank goodness. He has her go up to her room while he yeah. talks with Clarendon. He said he has this pretense of why he came. He says, hey, I have this article that somebody gave me at the club, and it's this Dr. Miller of Philadelphia, and he's gotten ahead of you with the cure. I think it's a sort of an antitoxin to take care of all sorts of different fevers, which is what Alfred had been working toward. Alfred's like, ah, oh, well, I guess I could read that article. I was going to give my sister a hypodermic. <laughs> kind of getting in the way. And, so uh, he reads it. 
And he just kind of collapses. He drops the syringe and sits on a chair and he's, he's like, oh no, it, it happened. And then he sort of becomes sane again at that point. Yeah, after he reads the article, the revelation that this other doctor actually is solving the problem freaks him out. Yeah, and he come, but he comes clean at that point. He goes, you know what? Yeah. What's been going on is I've been crazy and I can't tell you what, uh, what I've seen and what has made me crazy because it'll make you crazy. But basically what I've been doing is... I have been infecting people with with the black fever. I'm the cause of the disease. Yeah. I've been feeding off people's death and misery and that's why I've been doing this and I don't I can't explain to you how or why this works, but I've been doing it and it's wrong. And I need you to go into my lab, destroy everything and as for me, I'm going to be the last test and he injects himself with a with the hypodermic. Right. He he admits, "Well, you're right. I was going to get my sister with this, but this guy's done all the work that I said I was going to do, and instead I've turned into this monster who's just killing people for the the thrill of it, I guess. Yeah. And uh, and he injects himself. That's the last test. Dalton has the sister come down, and he says, say goodbye to your brother. He's got the fever. Uh, she does. She goes back up to her room, and then he sits with him, and he has a horrible hallucinations, and he's freaking out, and he starts ranting about things that are otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Dalton can't stay awake, and he eventually falls asleep. When he wakes up, the clinic is burning and Clarendon is gone. Clarendon got up and, and set, set the thing on fire, well, we, we assume. In the fire at some point, there's this deep, hideous chuckle and the flames of the burning clinic kind of start resembling these cyclopean creatures of nightmare. Yeah, he laughs and then all of a sudden, yeah, during the fire, lightning strikes mm-hmm. and then uh, Sarama's not laughing anymore. <laughs> oh, right. That's right. Because it's got a great line. It says uh, his chuckle ceased. And in its place came a frantic, ululant yelp as of a thousand ghouls and werewolves in torment. <laughs> Were- werewolves. <laughs> it doesn't bring up werewolves too often. I'm glad no, that's no. There. And Dalton's saying, hey, you know what? He atoned for what he did. He was always trying to... It, it, that's the total B-movie 1950s moment. You know, He was yeah. a great man, Georgie. Let's never forget that. <laughs> we must always be proud of him, for he started out to help mankind... And was Titanic even in his sins? You know, it's right out of there. <laughs> That's basically the end, except they find two bodies. One is Clarendon's, and the other looks mostly human, but it's a human skull and then some weird disjointed skeleton that isn't human and could only have been covered by robes and clothes that Sarama was wearing, implying that he wasn't even human. He was some weird thing. Right. Under the robes. Under the robes, strange yeah. going then. And then there's a little epilogue. It says, The Daltons have led on the whole a very happy life. For their cloud of terror lies far in the background, and a strong mutual love has kept the world fresh for them. But there are things which disturb them oddly, little things, of which one would scarcely ever think of complaining. They cannot bear persons who are lean or deep-voiced beyond certain limits, and Georgina turns pale at the sound of any guttural chuckling. Senator Dalton has a mixed horror of occultism, hypodermics, and strange alphabets which most find hard to unify. And there are still those who blame him for the vast proportion of the doctor's library that he destroyed with such painstaking completeness. That, that's uh, some funny phobia that he's got a fear of strange alphabets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. Oh, now, that was a long one to get through. It was. Um, as you said before, we shouldn't dig on this thing too much before we get through it. Okay, we got through it. I hated this story. Yeah, well, I, I didn't hate it. I, I, I found it interesting, but in that really bad B-movie kind of way. I, I was yeah. really, I, I read the whole thing in, in, well, not really one sitting, but I, tr- I tried to read it in one sitting. 
And I was interested in what happened and what was the cause of this black fever and what was going to be revealed. I mean, I was actually very surprised when he just said, yeah, I was, I was infecting people and just getting off on it and getting power from death. And I was like, whoa, that is dark. <laughs> I just thought it was cheap. You know, I thought that there was going to be more going on, like he was infecting the people so that he could get ahead or learn something. I don't know. In the end, that it was just, I've got this, I've got Cthulhu in a bottle. You know, I've got some kind of old world uh, Lovecraftian magic I'm injecting people with, and I just like to see him die. Like, it didn't even make any sense to me. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't reconcile that with the character that they set up. Yeah, and and I felt like it was a kind of a mashup of of Herbert West Reanimator and uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. There's a, sort of that elements where they're arguing and they're they're you know, cohorts in this dark stuff. And then there's also the fact that he's doing all these experiments and he's yeah. caught up in the science of it. And, well, he wasn't actually caught up in the science of it. He was caught up in the, the murder of it. <laughs> right. Now, Adolf Danziger de Castro is a very interesting guy, actually, that wrote this original story that, that Lovecraft then revised. And he, he had a whole slew of careers. He was a dentist for a long time. He was a lawyer. Uh, he lived in several different places, mostly in California, but, but all over the world. I believe this was this was written in 1927, but this was based on a story he'd written many years before. Yeah, it was written in uh, 1893. It was in a book called In the Confessional and the Following. Mm -hmm. The story was called A Sacrificed Science, but Lovecraft mm -hmm. called it Clarendon's Last Test, and then eventually it got changed to just The Last Test. Lovecraft had some funny... Well, we, we don't know much about DeCastro as a person or what he was like, we just know some of what his accomplishments were and what his career was, but luckily in, in Lovecraft's letters, we do get some <laughs> some description. Lovecraft said uh, of DeCastro, Old Dolph is a portly, sentimental, and gesticulating person given to egotistical rambling about old times and the great men he has intimately known. He entertained everybody with his loquacious egotism and pompous reminiscence of intimacies with the great. He regaled us with tedious anecdotes of how he secured the election of Roosevelt, Taft, and Harding as president. According to himself, he is apparently America's foremost power behind the throne. So he's a blowhard, right? Yeah. And that lines up with Lovecraft didn't like doing these revisions. He got paid. Yeah. Well, not, not he didn't get paid much. He got paid $16 for, uh -huh. for his work on this story. And then Castro went and sold it to Weird Tales for $175. Uh, yeah, you know, and it, and I heard that when Lovecraft was quoting his prices for doing this kind of ghostwriting or this revision work, that yeah. DeCastro was like, that's too much and bargained him down. Ugh. And, you know, I mean, most people think if they look at the original version that really the reason that these stories were well received at all was because of Lovecraft's work. Right. I mean, he really rehashed it. In fact, so in, in a letter to his aunt Lillian, Lovecraft wrote that the last test was the story that ruined his winter. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And in another letter to uh, Frank Long, he described it. He says, uh, and I'm calling in your aid right now in the case of old Dolph. He is too goddamn fussy to make his work a paying proposition for me, for his fiction is unspeakable, his paying <laughs> ability meager, and his demands for revision after his first version extensive. I about exploded over the dragging monotony of a silly thing which I renamed Clarendon's last test. Now, after thinking it over, he's decided to use the tale just as I fixed it up, which means that he probably just kept having him turn in revisions and then right. he went with what he'd originally done. That's so frustrating. Uh, he says, Via con Dios, Don, Alfa Don Aldafo, here's one reviser who won't raise any controversy by claiming authorship of this beastly mess. <laughs> and he didn't at first. I think that uh, uh, DeCastro published it under his name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was first published in Weird Tales in November of 
1928, and it was in collected in this book called Cats. But those were un- as a DeCastro story. Yeah, those were DeCastro stories. It didn't get published as a Lovecraft work until 1989. Oh, really? Yeah. That late? And that was in The Horror, in the Museum, and Other Revisions uh, by S.T. Joshi. In some other letters, here's just a couple more things he wrote about uh, DeCastro. <laughs> he said uh, <laughs> he called him an unctuous old hypocrite, a pestiferous old leech, a wily old braggart, and this is my favorite, <laughs> a queer cuss. he's a queer cuss but it was even like at one point he was so sick of him during these revisions he wrote I hope he goes down to Mexico and gets shot or imprisoned (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah so man I didn't feel so bad about my because I was starting to get angry while I was reading the story it's really long it's really dull Mm -hmm. and there's it's very unsatisfying and I was just it took me a couple hours to read it yesterday and I thought you know this is a terrible way to spend my weekend yeah (laughs) I was really mad about it yeah I thought it was much shorter than it was until I sat down because I was going to try and read it on the train and then I ended up reading it on the train and then I read it at home Mm -hmm. and then I ate and then I kept reading it it was one of those where I was like god please end why don't you just be over I want to thank this week's reader Marty Jobson uh Marty you did a great job Thanks for helping out. I appreciate it. And if you want to know more about what Marty does, uh, we'll put a link to his website on our show. Yeah, Marty's a big, uh, he's a science guy, right? Oh, yeah. He's a a presenter who does lots of science type of bits for the BBC. So like explaining different types of scientific theories and how things work. And he builds lots of cool props and stuff like that. Well, I'd love it if he could explain how the black fever works or... uh... (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. Or, what, you know, what is it that happens when scientists turn to murder? <laughs> uh, next week, we're doing another twofer, uh, Ibid yeah. and History of the Necronomicon. Ibid and the History of the Necronomicon, yeah. and we'll have a guest, right? Yeah, we're having a guest host who's James Holloway, uh, archaeologist. We're going to talk to him about his seminar that he's done, and yeah. it, it really kind of applies to these two uh, pieces of work, and um, he's all-around fun guy, so it'll be great all to right, have him cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Those are some short stories, so maybe we can spend a little more time just... Yeah, chatting. Chat. Yeah, that'd be great. Sounds good. Uh, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.